Welcome to Business Talk Sister Gok. I'm Becca and today's podcast episode is part two of how to make yourself useful. And if you did not hear part one of this series, you should go back and listen to the episode previous to this one. I am in the process of talking with John Cook, who uh, I described a little bit. <laughs> In the last episode, as the abstract wisdom of Yoda, the joy of refuge uh, of Rafiki, and all wrapped together in a grandfatherly Vincent Van Gogh, and I don't think he necessarily agrees with that description. <laughs> it's <laughs> but, okay. But thank you for being back with me today. I really appreciate it. Um, I wanted to pick up that discussion we were having last time. So you said you were having a hard time reading things, but by 14 you said, I'm going to do, I'm going to try to read this big Bible. And then you started seeing the world a little bit differently in how people were living or whatever. But what, what then was your next, because I know we also talked about um, your college and finding out you had a disability. What was like the next step then after you decided that? And I know we kind of skipped ahead and talked about your job at Disney as an Imagineer and everything, but but tell us about how you got to um, just that journey of going from this to this. Because you mentioned, like, I did this, I did this, I did this beforehand um, and, and learned all these different skills. So can you tell me the next progression? Yeah, I can. Um, it, it's like when you watch other people to, to mirror, to understand what are you supposed to do in this world, you watch other teenagers be teenagers. You say, well, that's my behavior for now. We all mimic each other, whether we know it or not. And so mm-hmm. when you can't communicate and have people stop and listen to you because maybe they're better at it than you, mm-hmm. you tend to just observe a little more. And then when you talk, you, you test things out. Like, I'll say this and see what happens. I'll say that and see what happens. Mm. But in, in peer group and peer group pressure, um, there's always that especially coming through the teen years. And one day I just said, oh, to heck with that. It's just too much work. And they're their group, and I'm me. We'll do what I can do. And I began to just kind of, it's, you don't pull away. You just realize we're just different. I'm just different. It's like a personal acceptance. It of, is. I'm and never going to be the same. Is I'm, I'm never going to be that. I'm going to be this. And this is okay. You have to just all of a sudden do the best you can with it. But what I did notice that was that because of the kind of things I like to do I had built skills that most people don't build I played with things I took things apart to see if you can get them back together you know my parents used to say don't give him tools <laughs> because you <would> just <laughs> he will disassemble it take it apart <laughs> and see how it works and, and sometimes it go back together and sometimes it would and then you're like oh yeah man, I, I, I worked on my that. mom's washing machine it still doesn't work and, and you know but expensive exploration experiments. yeah and and uh there was other mixtures, other factors, other people in your life, and they're doing what they're doing. And it's not always conducive to, to making the best version of yourself because other people around you, your family, your friends, a, a lot of them, I began to notice what I called the early plateau. And even in high school, I could see that people, people would graduate from high school and plateau. Next time you see them, they're, they're a, a box boy or a clerk, and that was going to be their life from then on. It's like, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not what I wanted. Because there were people in the world that you could see who were doing things that were just magical. People trying to go to the moon. People trying to paint beautiful pictures. People writing beautiful music. All kinds of things that people were doing. And say, I want to do stuff too. And with all of that stuff, there's an approval that goes with it. You have to have your work accepted or be approved or become something. And I noticed very early on that most people who become successful at anything first work on being 
accepted as a successful person. It wasn't so much the work they did, it was the persona they projected doing the work. You had young emerging artists in music, art, literature, science, but their persona was the driving thing for it. They had to be liked and their work had to be outstanding, exceptional. Mm-hmm. Well, at 15, 16, 17, uh, unless you're a prodigy or a genius, it's hard to be exceptional. There's mm-hmm. so much stuff in the world. Mm-hmm. And you have to accept the fact that, well, they can do that, but I can't. They can do this, but I can't. And so when you begin to measure the, the calibration of who you are versus who others are, when I, after I had read the Bible, I realized that there was a calibration there that measured all of humanity. That the most important factors wasn't necessarily what you could make or do or say. It's who you are. Who, who are you going to come out as? Who do you end your life as? What, what is this that you're doing? You're not a machine that manufactures things or builds things or makes things. We do that. But what you are is really somebody who is finding out uh, whether you're just a, a machine or you're a creature of spirit, a creature of knowledge and understanding. And I begin to see that, that these things were more important. But the pressure of the everyday worker day world was like, fit in, better get some credentials, better get a job, you're going to have to settle down, you have to marry, you have to raise a family. And all those pressures like, yeah, but doesn't everybody do that? I mean, don't, isn't that a given? So how is it that you can have people doing all kinds of wonderful things, having a great life, and they do that stuff too? So it's not one or the other, it's mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. And I begin to calibrate the world in a new way. Like, well, you, you don't want to lose yourself while you find yourself. But mm-hmm. how do you find yourself if you don't know yourself became predominant by the time I was 17, 18, and 19. The other mix in there was I, I came from a drinking family. Mm-hmm. My, my parents were ultimately became alcoholics. My wife's family became alcoholics. Those things, I mean, I remember seeing that as, as a child that my dad said something like, well, you can't trust somebody who didn't, doesn't drink. I remember hearing that when I was seven or eight years old. So those have an influence too, like, oh, well, that's how you get along because I thought my dad was king of the world, mm. okay? And so those influences, you have to find out where you fit and go on and grow through. College wasn't much better for that. Um, the, the peer group wasn't much better for that. Then you'd see people graduate. You'd see them go out into the world and, and go and accomplish and do. It became like, not what are they doing? What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. What do, you, do you have to do this or do you want to do that? Mm-hmm. And, and can't they be the same thing? And, you know, coming up in this world, all the pressures push everybody into, you do what I need you to do. And then I heard this from, from a, a person on a job I worked for. He says, he says, John, I don't care if you succeed, just don't do it before I do. <laughs> and I thought, what does that mean? And he was in the way. I couldn't get a raise or I couldn't move forward. And I started to realize that, that most people have their own best interests at heart. It's not that they have maliciousness or malice towards you, but if you're going to pass them, they do. They'll stick their foot out, trip you. So there's this whole other world that you come into in adulthood. The unions were like that. I had people in the unions in the movie business tell me, we're going to break your hands if you don't slow down. You're making us look bad. I said, no, I'm not making you look bad. You're doing that all by yourself. You know, and that, that was hostile because they move at a group speed and they move at a group think and they move at a group success rate. Okay, well, we need to back up a little bit because you said you were working in the movies, but what did you do before that? Uh, well, all the way coming up through, like I say, I, went, I was either working at the resort. From there, I went to college, okay, and I worked in restaurants to 
help pay my way through it. When I came out of college, um, I went to work for my father's construction company. He had gotten out of the laundry and gotten into a construction company. So I started learning how to build houses and work with wood and work in the shop. By the time I was 17 or 18, I had worked on several houses in the summer times. By the time I was 19 or 20, I probably had worked on seven or eight houses. When I was 21, I decided to build my own house, so I started building a house. I built a three-story A-frame, and, and just kind of pretty big house. It, it was a big house. Okay, <laughs> I, th they weren't usually that big. I thought, well, I'm going to build one with one more story, mm -hmm. just because you know you can. I didn't have the money for it, so I thought, well, maybe if I had an art show, I'll take all my hidden paintings and I'll paint some more, and I'll ha have an art show. So I did. I, I I talked to a restaurant in our local town. I said, could I? hang an art show in here, sell artwork off your walls. He says, as long as I don't have to pay for it, you can do it. So I hung 75, 80 paintings hmm. in, in there, and uh, within three months had a, a total sellout. I sold them all, wow. and, and I wanted to average the price. At that time, I think I was averaging the price of 100 bucks a piece. I said, well, that's enough to buy the material to build a house. Hmm. Back then it was. Mm -hmm. So if I had enough to buy the materials, I had enough to borrow the rest. So I went to the bank, and I borrowed as much as I had, doubled the money and went and built the house. And that was the money I was gonna to use to get married and go to college on. Again, go back, you know. Mm. Uh, I didn't tell you, I took time off between my college years. Okay. Work, go a couple of years, take a year off, go another year, take another year off, go take a half year. It took me quite a while to, to, to do this. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> to screw this up was, was a long process. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, you know, as I did those things, I would take whatever odd jobs I could. But those things would teach you how to do things. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, during that period of time, uh, I would have been in my early 20s, and uh, I was dating my wife at that time. So was back in, she was in California. I was in Arizona. It was back and forth. It was all kinds of stuff. And that's when I was learning how to frame pictures and silk screen print and whatever I could come up with and making widgets and gidgets and you know. And you were doing this on your own, or yeah. were you okay? Yeah, just, you were just yeah. messing around trying to find. Well, you're trying to find out, out different things. Yeah, I, I'd like to try that. So you go do it. Mm -hmm. This is where that you separate from your group because they're not going to do those things that doesn't fit the group, and their talent bases that aren't proven out. So um, it's like early in our marriage, my wife and I started a silkscreen shop because there wasn't in town. I thought it'd be really cool if we could print T-shirts. This is before the T-shirt craze. People were printing a T-shirt. I said, well, mm -hmm. we'll go do that. Mm -hmm. But. I didn't have real good business experience. I was really good at stuff, but I'm really not good at business. Mm -hmm. You know, I should have had a business manager always. I still should have a business manager. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. and I should, like, put a caveat in there, too, just as you're listening to this. Um, John is such a visionary. He, he sees things before most people think it's going to be a big idea. And I think that that's really helped you in so many ways. It has, and it still does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The difference now is that you learn how to express it over a lifetime, you learn how to either get it said or express it or do it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean somebody's going to act on it. It just still does it. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I have drawings that go back. I, I don't know how many drawings I have that go back to when I was six years old, I guess, seven years old. And I look at stuff that still hasn't been done. You say, well, it would be cool if we could do this. <laughs> and it's not, it's not so much visionary. It's just that you, you draw what comes into your head. Mm -hmm. You don't know where it comes from. It just comes into your head. Okay, sorry. So we got off track. So you did some screen printing. Yeah, silk screen printing. I, loved, I loved it. I found out, this was an interesting fact. I didn't know this, but during the 50s and 60s, probably long before that, during the 50s and 60s, before major industrial printing changed with a, with a computer and such, 90% of all printed matter, not books, not textbooks, not documents, but 
if you take labels on Coke cans or beer cans, or you take labels, um, billboards, um, printed circuits, what all done was silkscreen. 90% mm. of all the printing in the world was silkscreen printing. It okay. was such a flexible thing. And I wanted to go be a silkscreen printer because I wanted to print on everything. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, you just go find the stuff. Well, in a small town, you can't get supplies, so you have to order everything. You wait for this to come in and wait for that to come in, but eventually uh, you got into printing. But one thing teaches you another. Mm -hmm. While you're waiting, you have to make this, you have to do that. So each of these things compounds and builds. The more changes they make, the more compounding and building you do. Mm -hmm. And if you can emotionally stand the success failure rate, right? which there's always right. one of each, mm -hmm. and usually the failure rate is the latter, latter one. Mm -hmm. so, so, so when you go through this, you have to be able to sus sustain emotionally. And I think this is what my childhood taught me. I was just so used to um, this will work or it won't. Mm -hmm. And so you, just, you don't really worry about it. You just go do it. And if it doesn't, oh, well, that didn't, so let's go do this. Mm -hmm. But it taught you something about how to do it differently next time. Yes, and, and not how to be welded to or married to what you think your outcome's going to be. When you determine, the only one of those I ever had in my life is I want to go to work for Disney. Mm -hmm. I knew that when I was a child. Mm -hmm. Once I did it, like, okay, I can go do something else. <laughs> yeah, and I think one of the things that I'm hearing that I want to point out, because sometimes when I'm like taking notes on other podcasts or whatever, if someone doesn't summarize it, I'm trying to write it down furiously on my own. Um, the things that I'm seeing that really helped you are that you had an incredibly humble spirit in wanting to work any job that you could it didn't matter to, yeah. yeah to be able to provide for yourself and your family yeah the job wasn't me yeah mm -hmm. that's just what you do because that's what you're supposed to be doing yeah and then your love for learning in that and not just doing it to just get the paycheck but doing it to truly understand yep. how to do it well so that you could apply it to something else yep and that's like i think that really speaks to how to make yourself useful is gathering those skills over and over and that aspect you're saying of compounding mm -hmm. is yeah, incredible and, and they and they all combine as you you've heard me say this in person when we were talking uh at this time in my life i've, I've said what did this teach you and i said it's, it's this simple i have learned that i want to do a project that is all the things i love to do because mm -hmm. there's too many things that i like to do i have to make them all become the one thing i'm doing so can i do a project that includes all of these things mm -hmm but I'm not doing any of them, I'm doing all of them. And you say, well, that's not very good focus. Well, I, I don't care what other people think about this. This is what I'm doing. How do you do that? And this is what I've learned across a lifetime is, is you're not married to the thing that you're doing. You're adding the thing that you're doing to your marriage. <laughs> okay. Okay? Yeah. And that makes a lot of difference when you get your head around it, that it's like you don't have to excuse it, you don't have to explain it, you don't have to apologize. I'm going to go do this now. Well, my wife has learned over the years. I say, oh, look, this is really interesting. I'm going to try that. Okay, now to a lot of people, that would be an alarm bell, a fire, uh, five alarm fire. <laughs> like, oh, no, here it goes. <laughs> but uh. she's like, oh, okay, that's fine, you know. Because what you do is you're adding that to it because you want to try it. You don't have to marry it. You don't have to carry it. You don't have to indulge yourself in it. But if you experience it and taste it, say, I'm going to do this, it adds to your skill base. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you can do some things that other people can't. Mm -hmm. So that's probably the, the major changes that took place when I was able to accept the fact that you just emotionally have to be able to stand yourself while you do this. Yeah. And, and not, not say, I have to be this or I have to be that. What 
what you have to do with that is that, I go back to when I was 14 and read the Bible, what you have to be, what your core is, that is your core. The other stuff is the stuff you get to do while you're here. And when you separate those two, you realize it doesn't matter what you do while you're here. It doesn't count anyway. So go have a good time and do it, but do it with the integrity of not losing your core or yourself or where you're going. So instead of being an architect or a doctor or a scientist or a rock ship engineer, be what you're supposed to be as an individual spiritually. And the rest of the stuff is just the, the career clothes that you wear. Mm. And then everything becomes okay to do. Yeah. So, okay. I, I know I want to keep going with this story, though, about so you were in construction, you built a house, and then what was the transition that you were like, all right, now I'm going to do the movies. What, what was that? <laughs> okay. When, when we came back out of, of that, we, my wife and I went back to school with some of the money from the house that we sold. Uh, we got cheated on the sale, but we still went to college another year. And then we realized the school thing isn't going to work out because we don't have the money to do it. So we're just going to f- do something else. I wound up selling life insurance for Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. Bad job for me because I'm not any good with details or documents. Mm. <laughs> good because I'm a good salesman. I, I really get along with people. I had no problem with the pitch. I had a lot of problem with the fulfillment. Mm-hmm. And after about a year of that, I said, okay, I'm going to go get a job in construction because I can do that. I went to work for a, a general contractor in my hometown who had been my shop teacher in high school and also my football coach and also had worked in the band. Mm. So, And he was one of the guys who probably had read my papers, just set him in the corner, pat him on the head and everything's <laughs> fine, just leave him alone. But in Woodshop, I was the only one who completed the projects on time mm-hmm. and way ahead of what, what the expectations. Mm-hmm. He recognized that my talent was in doing, not getting res- it done, getting it done, mm-hmm. doing. And so he hired me to be his construction foreman because I had already built my own house. I had built several other houses with my father. My father had passed away. I went to work for this guy, and he made me his foreman. And at that time, we were, we were building, we were opening and closing a house a week. I had built over 300 houses with him as a contractor. Mm-hmm. He was the contractor. I was just the foreman. Mm-hmm. And he hired a salesman, and the salesman um, was getting paid three times what I was getting paid. I, mm-hmm. was, I was making sure the house was closed, and I was helping him close his houses because he didn't know what a house was. Mm-hmm. So I'd go out with him, and we're closing houses, and I went to the boss, and I said, hey, why don't you just let me be the salesman because I, can, I got a young family. I need to make that much money. Oh, I can't afford to have you do that. We need you over here as a foreman at one-third the wages because I can't get another one to do what you do. I can get lots of his kind, but I can't get any more of your kind. And I looked at him and he says, I quit. <laughs> And, and I, that's enough of that. <laughs> I walked out the door and I told my wife, I'm going to go be a contractor. So I decided I'll take the test. All right. Now, the word test comes up, mm. my least skillful skill, but I'm going to go take this test. It's an eight hour test that you take. And I studied for it. I read for it the best of my ability. And you could take a computer, a, a calculator with it. You, they didn't have computers at that time, they had calculator. I couldn't afford one, so it was pencil and paper. My math, my other weak subject, okay? I said, but I'm going to go do this. Mm-hmm. And I went to take this test, and there was a room full of guys who got the test done in four hours. It was an eight-hour test. It was me and two other guys who probably had the same problems I had taking this test. But I struggled through the end thinking, well, whatever happens, happens. At least I took the test. Mm-hmm. I tried. And they said, it's an 80% failure rate for the test. Only mm-hmm. 20% of you are going to pass. Mm-hmm. So I went home and waited for my failures to come through. And 
I got my license. It came through. Mm. I passed the test. Because they had a section in there where if you, if you couldn't answer it in numericals, you could answer it in sketch. Aha. Uh-huh. So, Sneaky. And they, they, they gave us a, it was an, had to bid on an eight-story building made out of concrete with marble. I had never seen that, no idea. But it was visual. Mm-hmm. I could visualize it and I could do it by the square foot. So um, I got licensed to build high-rises if I wanted to. Hmm. And I got a contractor's license. I was the third youngest contractor in America at that time. Wow. General contractor. I went into business, and about the time we got rolling, I had three, three houses going, and we had a house, and our house was half paid for because I built half of it. Mm-hmm. And we went with, from a $10 bill up to a bunch of money. And the oil embargo hit, and the banks went closed. What is, what, okay, so the banks closed because? They, they didn't want to transfer, transact business. 1,800 contractors went out of business that same year. Oh, my goodness. And I was one of them because the banks just shut down. Boom. And the savings and loan that I was working with, they closed the front door, but you still had to do the back door. That means that you had to pay the payments you owed, but they wouldn't pay the advances on the houses. By the time I got done liquidating, I was in the hole. Oh, man. I thought, you know what? And tell me historically a little bit about the oil embargo. What, what is oh, that, that was in the 70s. And, and all of a sudden, the oil barrel, the barrel price shot up, tripled, mm. and they started shutting off the valves, and uh, the gas lines started forming. It was long before you were born. Okay. <laughs> and, and literally, it began to shut the businesses down in America, and uh, contractors were one of the first because there was a lot of float money. In other words, you would you'd do a completion loan. You sell a house, you go to the bank, you get a contract on building the house. They would advance you as you constructed the house. They would advance you money on the house to that point. Mm-hmm. But you had to sign a completion contract. So you, you guaranteed that you would complete the house or they wouldn't give you the loan. Mm-hmm. So you, you get a few houses with completion contracts, you're liable for completing them whether they give you any money or not. Mm. Your completion contract is with the buyer, okay? Theirs is with the bank, and yours is with borrowing the money against that loan. Mm-hmm. So it didn't take very long to use up all the cash you have and all the assets that you have, and you bought them out, and everybody else gets their house. Mm. The oil embargo stops that because they don't want to move the money. So the banks, the banks shut their credit accounts off, and the savings and loans said, you have to pay us what you owe us, but we're not going to give you advances on your houses. So we cash shortage. Mm. So when we closed it out and got done, we still had a house, but we couldn't get it sold because houses weren't moving. Mm-hmm. So we decided the best thing to do is I said, you know what? I'm going to start a different career, which was my pattern. Mm-hmm. Okay. I says, she says, what are you going to do? I says, I'm going to go back to school in California and I'm going to get a job in Disney. Goals it's coming goal. up. <laughs> so we packed up bag and baggage. We moved over there to California from Arizona. And when we closed the door and returned the rental truck, we had no job. We knew nobody. And we had 37 bucks between us. And I put my <laughs> You tool- are such a risk taker. I like put- every time I just talk with you, it's like <laughs> yeah. you're just riding high. So let's go. Barely- well, we're riding low yeah. on it. But- so I put, I, I strapped my tool belt on and I put my tools in a box. I walked up and down the street. Seemed I could do handiwork, and I, I would get enough work each day to get enough money to go, you know, and and. Uh, so you just knock on people's doors and tell them. Yeah, and then I, f- I found a place where I could give art lessons in the evening. So I was giving art lessons in the evening, and uh, the lady says, "What are you doing?" I said, "I'm looking for work." She says, "I know a place where I can get you one day's work." I says, "I'll take it." And so I got a call the next day from CBS Studios. She got me one day's work on the studio lot, CBS mm. Studios, mm-hmm. and I said, "Well, okay." So I showed up to do my day's work. 
which is a completely different story. I was used to doing piecework in a hurry. They put me on what was called stage four. It was a, a movie called Spencer's Pilots. Hmm. And the guy comes up, he says, uh, somebody, you, you owed somebody, somebody owed you a favor, so they gave you one day's of work. Don't expect to come back tomorrow, but here's your day's work. There's a pile of wood over here. We might, we might make as many of those as you can with that pile of wood over here. Pointing one pile of wood and one sample. I says, and she says, until I come back. When I come back, so we'll find something else for you to do. So I looked at the wood. I looked at the pile. So I just started. Okay. Now, he was expecting one or two pieces to be done. Mm-hmm. You know, he came back and had 18 done in a pile because I was used to production. Get it done. Mm-hmm. And he, I thought he was going to hemorrhage. He said, you're only supposed to do one or two. He says, you didn't say one or two. He said, get as much as I can done before you come back. That was the instructions. So he went and got the boss. They asked me if I'd come back tomorrow. Hmm. And I was there from then on. It was just an immediate job. That, so that's where, I, that's where I went to work for Jim Henson. That's where I worked on Spider-Man. That's where I worked with the stars. And I got into live TV and I got into special effects with the movies. And within two years, I was foreman of the special effects shop at the CBS because I got things done. And that's like something that is surprising to be like, it's surprising that other people wouldn't do well, what course. they were asked yeah, to the, do. The, they, they say slow down because you're making us look bad. They were busy with the union. They were busy with the rules. They're busy with the group. They're busy with the social structures, all of which had evaded me in my life. I didn't know how to do that. Mm. I, had, I don't have those social skills. I can't, I don't fit that. No, let's hey, go do that. There's a door. Hang it. Go hang it. It's, you know, don't talk about it. Don't go have coffee. Don't do. We'll do it this afternoon. Go do it. See, because that's the world I had come from. So not having the fit in high school, not having the fit in junior high, not having even in grammar school, it, it prepares you to be something else. Now, the success is that you. To me, success is not failing. Not that you achieve this goal or this pile of money. It's not a gold rush. It's like, are you living a decent life? Can you take care of yourself? Is your family happy? Are you moral? Are you just? Are you, are you really following the, the real rules of, of natural justice of the world? Are you a decent human being to begin with? Regardless of what, you, what comes out of the job, the job doesn't count. If you eat a lunch, you can't take it with you tomorrow. You ate it yesterday. <laughs> and, well. the, and the pile of money goes away. I learned it you know, through the... Through, through the the way that the business unfolded itself, I didn't have the business experience to know how to protect myself against an oil embargo. Had I been in business two or three years, I probably would have had the experience to have a bankroll that could have covered it. Mm-hmm. When I left town, I decided I'm out of here. I had three different people who were wealthy ask me to please stay. They would fund my business if I would stay and build it. Mm. They wanted a good builder who wasn't corrupted and who didn't work with the banks and the mafia and the, all the, the power boys. I don't fit those groups either. So I, f- I found that the whatever condition you want to call it uh, keeps me actually free from working with the groups because I just can't. <laughs> and so to me, success is can, can you live the longest life you have without losing yourself, without losing your family, taking care of your me- needs, doing the things you want to do. So if you define success differently, mm. you live a different life. Mm-hmm. because you can't take it with you. And if you, if you do take it with you, there's no place to spend it. <laughs> this well, is, this is why heaven is paved with gold, because gold would make a good paving material. <laughs> well, okay, so I have one more question, and I think we're going we're gonna to go a little long on this one. And so before we transition into the gawk, 
portion of the episode. Did that answer your question? Oh, absolutely. Okay. You're you're. I don't remember the question. You're doing great. Um, So my question is, what would you say are resources that you would recommend to people who are just trying to figure out how to make themselves useful? What would you say, here's the things that you should do in life? Well, first of all, today, unlike then, there is so much information and literature at your fingertips that the number one resource is the curiosity that you should have. If you find something that you like, it's probably because you're good at it. I think the number one resource is for a person to go look at themselves and say, I would really like to do, if it's pottery, or if it's sculpting, or if it's mathematics, or if it's driving a car, whatever it is really you like, it's probably because you have a talent for it. Then say, well, I can't make a living at it. Well, don't measure it. Don't look at what you think a success in that field is. Look at who you are when you're doing it and saying, this makes me happy. Now go research it. Because at your fingertips is so much information today Mm. that all of the things that you could do with it that would give you the money to continue to do it are there. You just have to have learn the skill to find those things. I think it's about questions, it's about search, and it's about answers. And then when you find the answer, don't take it as a solution. Take it as a clue of what you should look for next. If you get on the quest to say, what am I looking for? What is this about? And do I really want to do it? And then give up on what you think you think the goals are. It's a given that you should pay your bills on time. It's a given that you should be a decent person. It's a given that when you walk into a room and somebody's sitting in there, they deserve dignity and respect just because they're in the room. Mm. Not because you've misjudged them. If you were blind and couldn't see what they're wearing or what they looked like, you would do all that on what they said with their voice or their voice inflections. It's like if you were blind and you said, I'm going to judge this room from my blindness, would you get a different thing than a person who was not blind? Because the prejudice is so ingrained in all of us of what somebody looks like or how they act or what they do or what the job is or what their success is or how much money they have, the car they drive. Mm. All of those things have determined this, this overlord in your mind of what you think you have to do with your life. But if you're hanging by one fingernail from a bridge, you would reassess all of that instantly if you said, get me off of this and I promise to be good. You know, Mm. it's it's like that that old joke of this guy who falls off a cliff and he's hanging on one little branch on the side of the cliff. And he's praying, he's praying, oh God, save me and I'll believe. And the guy says, this voice comes down from above and says, turn loose of the branch. And the guy says, is there anybody else up there? And, and this, is, this is where we are with our lives. This is where we are with, with determining what success is. This is where we are with, with, with judging people and ourselves by them. And so most people learn to judge themselves very early. And they, and they so mold themselves that to get out of it is so hard, they become what they thought they were going to be when they were teenagers. And they spend their life in a plateau of being that, thinking that's success. And they never even got up to pace. If, if you look at something the scripture says that you are a child unto an hundred, we never reach maturity in this life. We get up to 70, 80, 90, and we haven't even hit maturity yet. What would we be if we lived 200, 300, 400? So why would you spoil yourself even by the time you're 90? Because if you stepped into that, if you could step into that, wouldn't you want to be the best version of yourself you could? And what has that got to do with money or success or accomplishment? Those are the things I think are the joy of life that you get to do and use. If you get your core right in the first place, then all the other stuff is just toys. (laughs) And I know that 
in so many conversations I've had with you, and if you're listening to this, John is just someone that you can take 30 minutes to listen and then suddenly there's like an epiphany somewhere in there for you. And I just, I love that. I love like the different conversations in that. So um, thank you for being with me today. Thank you for having me. And I want to transition into the gawk portion because I wonder if you can tell me a story (laughs) about your experience um, working for the theme park in Japan. I can. Um, Unless you're uncomfortable. Doing well, uh, well, several on that. Uh, the, the, the theme park in Japan was, uh, was um, for the person who invented Hello Kitty. Okay? <laughs> Just like such a random, like, yeah, and, <laughs> you and cracked he, me up. This, well, this man, what he had done was, and I don't know if this is a, a it's not a comedy thing, it's just a truth thing, uh, where I learned something very important. He had mirrored, mirrored some of his life, um, Suji, his name was Suji, um, Mr. Suji, and he, he wanted to be the Walt Disney of Japan. Mm. Which, so he started what he called a communication company. Over here, we would call that Hallmark. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So his company did what Hallmark does over here, he did over there. Publishing uh, note cards, and then he got into figurines, then he got into Hello Kitty, mm-hmm. he got into the whole thing, and then he decided he wanted to do a theme park. And so I had done some displays for him and he very graciously invited me as his personal guest to come visit the park after it was done now the project i was working on was was huge it was a i worked for a company and there was a 900 million dollar project and the part i did was less than one half a percent of that mm-hmm. i built some displays that are weren't even one half a percent of that right. value right but at the end he invited me it alone to go visit his park because he liked the work I had done for him. Mm. He wanted me to do some more work for him. He had admired Disney and he knew that I admired Disney. I don't know how he knew that because I didn't know him, but he made me his guest. So I flew over there and and uh, he gave me a tour of his company and his factory and, and, and his place. And we were at dinner and, and, and I asked him, he says, I said, I did the numbers on your park. I said, you built this theme park where you can only get 6,000 people an hour through your park, but you paid a billion dollars for the park. I said, you will never get your money back at the fees that you cause at the gate for 6,000 people an hour. There's not enough hours in the day or years in your life to ever get your money back. And he looked at me. Now, he didn't speak English. He spoke through an interpreter. Mm-hmm. And he told the interpreter something. And, and, and he says this. He says, what gave you the idea I wanted my money back? <laughs> I was baffled. I said, well, why else would you do it? He says, because it needs to be done. He says, I have the money. He says, I didn't borrow the money. He says, I paid cash. He says, like Disney, build Epcot. He said, he paid cash. He said, I didn't, I didn't want the banks to tell me what to build. He says, I wanted to build a theme park. I wanted my park too. I want people to enjoy it. I want them to be proud of Japan, of their heritage and their life. And he says, that's why I've invited you, because I want to do another project this way. Hmm. I flew home. And the next day, the Japanese market crashed. Oh. And we never did the project. It's like, these are the kind of things like, oh, bummer. So I don't know how infected I am with that because Disney had a dream of building semi-truck trailers full of stories so children could understand how things are made. He didn't build it because it wouldn't economically fit his lawyers and his accountants' bookkeeping. So Mr. Suji was going to do it instead. Mm. And he wanted to know if I was interested. Now, he's gone. 
He was 67 when I met him, and that's 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. All right? And then all of a sudden, I found out that one of the projects I want to do is similar to that. Now, I don't have a billion dollars, okay? But somebody does. <laughs> and you're going to figure it out. Well, that's the point. So it's like, just like I, I can't say no for them. To take my own advice. I'll say yes for me. Mm-hmm. I won't say no for them. Can I find that person? Can they help with a, with a smaller version of the same thing? Is it worthwhile? Do I really want to do it? Are all the things that I want to do the one thing I'm now doing? So I'm actually living my own expression of what I think this is what you should do. Mm. How else could you say it? So that's what you're working on right now. It, it basically is. Mm. And it's a very little idea, but it's also a very big idea, which makes it very difficult to express to other people. Which is why I think, well, maybe this is why I should do is because I don't know how to express to them anyway. Mm. This is a communication thing. Well, and I, so I know that we are going so over time, but I want to thank you so much for spending time with me today. I've really appreciated it. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. And I, if you are listening to this podcast and you enjoyed it, um, John Cook is the guest today and if you look for the future with all of his new projects i'm sure you will see them soon if you're a billionaire (laughs) give me a call (laughs) exactly and if you enjoyed this podcast uh, you can give it a review on spotify now it's business talk sister gawk and i will see you next week